Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. Father Bergman, welcome. Thank you very much. Good to be back. Good to have you with us. So last week I, I diagnosed the problem. It was a sort of sad class. We went from uh, basically uh, 1850 to uh, or uh, to modern age. So, I mean, we started a little bit before that, maybe around the time of the French Revolution. And now we uh, today we'll describe the solution. And then finally, next week, prescribe our good work. So today is a description of the solution and more practical advice for next time. I begin today with uh, St. Augustine of Hippo, the city of God. That is the uh, sort of foundational work for the establishment of Western civilization besides the Bible. I mean, if there's two important books, if you had to just have two important books to read, uh, the first you would read is the Bible. The second you would read is the City of God. And if you were to go through that uh, entire work, and that's really hard, uh, I would recommend rather simply reading Book 19, because Book 19 explains the relationship between social disorder, and atheism. So if there is chaos in society, we think about our immediate needs. We think about what we need to eat, where we are going to find shelter, where we are going to be clothed. We don't think about the eternal verities because only leisure gives time for worship. If we have order, we can have worship. If we have, sorry, if we have order, we can have leisure. If we have leisure, we can have worship, by which we are able to contemplate God and the eternal truths that is both written on our hearts and inscribed in nature. So we can see from simply the beauty of creation that God exists and that he loves us, uh, but this can only take place uh, outside of the context of chaos. We have to have some manner of order by which to contemplate the eternal verities. In a sinful world, ever since the fall in the Garden of Eden, order has to be imposed, or even the pagans will be unable to engage in their hedonism. One of the things that uh, Augustine was doing was addressing the fact that the church was being blamed for the sack of Rome that took place in 410. In 410, the uh, city of Rome was sacked. Uh, that was when the Romans withdrew from England, for example. Uh, it was sort of the uh, death knell of the Roman Empire. It didn't happen, of course, until uh, 476. But the, the fact that Rome was sacked meant that all kinds of people started blaming Rome's weakness upon the church. And so Augustine, St. Augustine, wrote the City of God between 410 and 430 AD in order to describe what would ha what had happened and how order might be restored. And so 
he noticed that the order of society that is imposed by the pagans is necessary for the pagans to enjoy their uh, sort of Dionysian festivals. That is to say, uh, without order, even the pagans couldn't enjoy themselves. So they would impose order, the pagans imposed order, in order that they could continue to be hedonists. But Christians can at the same time use the order that is imposed by even a secular state in order to gaze heavenward and give to God his due. So to be just towards God, we must worship. In order for us to worship, we have to have time for leisure. In order for us to have time for leisure, we have to have order. Peace enables us to see the Lord and to see his works. But on the other hand, chaos impels us towards atheism because uh, we become blinded by self-interest. We can't see grace. We can't see the works of God. We can't see the beauty of creation if we are completely self-absorbed. And we see this, obviously, uh, in the aftermath of World War I, uh, even during the war. How many people uh, lost their faith? I mean, in almost an entire civilization lost its faith as a result of the chaos that enveloped Western civilization during the Second World War. And so uh, we, we see that this is, that's one example. I mean, World War I is one example. There was a lot of uh, atheism that came out of World War II, but the real uh, beginning of sort of institutionalized atheism, uh, we see sort of society-wide, not just in America, not just in France, but society-wide, we see that really happening uh, upon the conclusion of World War I. The chaos of World War I was an example of how self-interest and complete disorder causes us to become blind to the workings of God's grace. So what is the solution? St. Augustine explains that the foundation for order in civil society is order within the domestic church, that is the home. So we call uh, the home, the, for, for Catholics, the home is the domestic church. And uh, so the foundation for order, society-wide, is first having order in homes. If we want to have order in society, we have to have order in society's building blocks, which is each family. Remember that the family preceded the state. There was no government. There was no government when man came into the world when God made man, there was simply Adam and Eve, the family. And then later, families got together and they formed states. But initially, initially, there were simply families and they were then the building blocks. They became the building blocks for the creation of society. The keeper of order in the domestic church, St. Augustine says, is the pater familias. That is to say, the translation of that is the father of the family. The father of the family is the keeper of order. He maintains order first through reverence that is shown to him. So we have to make a distinction here between servile fear and reverent fear. Reverent fear is the fear of disappointing someone I love. If I love my dad, I want to make him proud of me. And so therefore I do good deeds 
in order that he will compliment me, in order that I will bring honor to the family name. So that's a reverent fear. I don't want to disappoint. And so it's not so much fear of being punished, which is servile fear. Servile fear says, I'm doing good because if I don't, I'll get beat. That is a total, or I'm failing to do evil because if I do evil, I'll be punished. So we make a distinction between reverent fear, which is superior to servile fear. So the father's first way that he maintains order is through requiring on uh, the reverence, but also really eliciting that reverence through the sacrifices that he makes. So when the father of the family does well, obviously uh, the, the family honors him. But secondarily, he also imposes order uh, by the power to coerce because men are uh, larger, faster, stronger than women. Uh, the man is able to impose order when there is a threat to that order, when disorder intervenes, either from without the family or from within it. He can impose order by force. And it's easy to see through how disorder has totally infected our society through fatherlessness. Fatherlessness in many American communities has issued in chaos. If we want to see uh, the principal distinction between those families living a middle-class lifestyle and those who are living in abject poverty, the number one indicator is fatherlessness. It does not have to do with one's uh, ethnic background. It has more to do with one's social background. That is to say, is there a culture of marriage within that particular family? And if there is marriage in the family, that is to say, there is a father at present with his wife and his biological children, there will be order where there is fatherlessness, there will be disorder. And what is the reason for that? My son just turned uh, 13 this year, and he is uh, already has size uh, 12 shoes. Sometimes uh, when we go out and get him shoes, it's 13 now. It's, it's constantly uh, changing week to week. He is 5'6", and the doctor told us he expects he will be 6'2", and about 220. And he's going to reach that uh, basically within the next year. We can tell from the massive growth spurt that he has enjoyed. And uh, we, we knew that from the time he was secondly charted his growth. That's because my dad was 6'3". My mother uh, was only 5'3", and that is to say she's shrunk since then. And, my, uh, and I am only 5'9". My wife is 5'6". So within the year, my wife is going to have a man, not a man at all, a boy man, who is 6'3 and 220 pounds. She will have no capacity whatever to control him if he were decided to go astray. If he decided to introduce disorder into our home, there's nothing at all she could do about it, except maybe call the cops. The reason we see disorder in societies that are afflicted by fatherlessness is because they're run by teenagers. That is to say, specifically, 13, 14, 15-year-old boys. They run everything because they have the capacity to impose their will through coercion. There is no father to put the tamper 
on the kid who doesn't know his right hand from his left. So we have social disorder as the result of teenagers essentially running the show. So I want you then to refer to the one passage that I gave you as a reader from Ad Petri Cathedrum, which was written by St. John the 23rd in 1959. And you see there, uh, we begin uh, with paragraph uh, 49. All will come out well if the social teaching of the Catholic Church is applied as it should be to the problem. And what he's talking about here is the problem of unity and conflict within society. Remember, this is in the middle of the Cold War. This is just a couple of years before the Cuban Missile Crisis, when my mother said they were sure we were about to go to war with the Soviet Union, possibly nuclear war. So he's talking about the problem of disunity. And so he says, first, let's start with the family. Everyone then must strive to preserve in himself and to arouse in others, be they of high or low degree, the queen and mistress of all the virtues, charity. The salvation we hope for is to be expected primarily from a great outpouring of charity. We refer to that Christian charity, which is a principle, synthesizing the entire gospel. That charity is always ready to spend itself in the interest of others and is the surest remedy against worldly pride and a moderate self-esteem. St. Paul, the apostle, described the characteristics of this virtue when he said, charity is patient, it is kind, it is not self-seeking, it bears with all things, it endures all things. So here is a modern articulation as I go down further and read the rest of the paragraphs that I gave to you. Here is a modern articulation of what St. Augustine of Hippo explained in the City of God in uh, Book 19. So many of you uh, that are watching right now were alive when these words were written. So I call it a modern articulation because it really isn't that long ago. My mom uh, was in high school when, when this uh, was written. And what St. John has done is he has improved upon it. If you go and read St. Augustine, the City of God, Book 19, uh, you'll, you might come back to me and say, but Father, he doesn't ever mention love. He talks about the Father Familiar, he talks about the ordering society, he talks about how we might worship the eternal uh, Lord and how we can contemplate the eternal verities, but he doesn't talk about love. Now, obviously, he talks about love in the other books of the City of God, and of course it's implied, but what St. John the Twenty-Third does here is he makes it more explicit. He has improved upon St. Augustine in giving this summary that we're about to read, he has improved upon St. Augustine by explicitly grounding the proper ordering of society in charity. So the paterfamilias is absolutely essential, but what he does must be done in and because of charity. All right. So we read beginning at chapter 50. We have called nations, their rulers, and all classes of society to harmonious unity, now we sincerely urge families to achieve and strengthen this unity within themselves. For unless peace, unity, and concord are present in domestic society, how can they exist in civil society? Again, this is just an articulation, a repeat of what St. Augustine said uh, 1,600 years before. This harmonious unity, which should exist within the family circle, rises from the holiness and indissolubility of Christian marriage. It is the basis of much of the order, progress, and prosperity of civil society. So here he goes one further and says, obviously, how do we get to this place where we have 
such wealth, where we have such order, it happened as a result of Christian marriage. Now, this is an order that St. Augustine didn't say. St. Augustine was saying, this is what we need. He didn't have it. But St. John the Twenty-Third, they have it. He sees things are slipping away, as I went through last week, so I don't want to dwell on the negative. But he sees things slipping away. He says, how did we get here? We got here because of Christian marriage, because of its indissolubility. Within the family, the father stands in God's place. He must lead and guide the rest by his authority and the example of his good life. So there's that reverent fear and servile fear combined into one. And it's, again, the uh, example of the is just, a, just, again, a review of what St. Augustine says in, in Book 19 of the City of God. The mother, on the other hand, should form her children firmly and graciously by the mildness of her manner and by her virtue. Together, the parents should carefully rear their children, God's most precious gift, to an upright and religious life. So we're starting to begin to see him talking about uh, the ends of marriage. Children must honor, obey, and love their parents. They must give their parents not only solace, but also concrete assistance if it is needed. The charity which burned in the household at Nazareth should be an inspiration for every family. All the children, all the Christian virtues should flourish in the family. Unity should thrive, and the example of its virtuous living should shine brightly. We earnestly pray God to prevent any damage to this valuable, beneficial, and necessary union. The Christian family is a sacred institution. If it totters, if the norms which the divine redeemer laid down for it are rejected or ignored, then the very foundations of the state tremble. Civil society stands betrayed and in peril, everyone suffers. So we see in uh, St. John the 23rd's letter, uh, his encyclical to the nations about unity, uh, we see that he is predicting in 1959 what here we are seeing over 62 years later, uh, precisely what he warned against. It is for love. When we think of this charity of which St. John the 23rd speaks, it is for love that the husband and father exercises his headship. And it is not for the sake of domination. One of the things that uh, people get worked up about when we start talking about headship is we begin to think, uh, Saint, as uh, Jesus says in, in chapter 10 of uh, St. Mark's Gospel, uh, the Gentiles lorded over them. They think of headship as, a, as, as domination. And what we learn, of course, from uh, the Lord is that headship means washing the feet of the disciples, means getting down on your hands and knees and, and, and washing the feet in order that they might be converted to the truth. So when we talk about headship, remember, this is not talking in terms of domination. Think like a Catholic, not like a pagan, not like a Gentile. So by the power of his example, others might order, order their own homes rightly, and then, of course, by ordering homes, rightly, society will be ordered aright. So here we must open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, wherein we behold the scriptural basis for the Christian theology of marriage. And, and so I want to read uh, this passage to you. Now, I'm not going to read the entire chapter, uh, because there's a big sort of diversion that St. Paul does uh, when he starts talking about uh, uh, charity, uh, he takes a little diversion off into sin. We covered that last week. And so uh, we're going to talk today uh, about virtue. So he says, beginning uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, 
and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is reminiscent, obviously. You just We just talked about John the 23rd uh, and, and how everything has to be rooted in charity. This is how uh, chapter 5 begins. And if we move on, uh, I'm going to start again at verse 21. We'll go to that epistle that until 1969 was read at every single Catholic nuptial mass in the Latin church. The, 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 the passage that we're about to begin with was read at every Catholic nuptial mass in the Latin church until 1969. Now, since then, you can choose a different epistle. And, but uh, still, this is one of the ones that's available, and people do choose it. So, but this is the, the Christian theology of marriage, and, and I'll, and I'll uh, read it, and then we'll uh, reflect upon it. Be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, be subject to your husbands, ask the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. As the church is subject to Christ, so that wives also be subject in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Even so, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no man ever hates his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, and I mean in reference to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So we begin with the reality that love is sacrifice. If we're supposed to love as Christ loved us, then we have as an icon what is before us at every single Mass, the crucifix. Love is sacrifice. It is not principally an emotion, although we do certainly feel love. Love is principally what we decide to do and then live out by laying down our lives for the brethren. So reverence for Christ and the sacrifice that he made upon the altar of the cross unites man and wife to God and to each other. So because they both desire to live into this sacrifice that Jesus made on Calvary, they complement each other and there is no competition. As I said last week, uh, there is no war of the sexes in the Christian context. Uh, there is not competition, which issues in death. There is complementarity that issues in life. Between a man and his wife, there's complementarity. There is not competition. They are not set against one another. The idea, remember, uh, I've, I've said this example before in, in presentations that I've made for the Institute of Catholic Culture, uh, the whole uh, vocabulary of protection, that you have to use protection or you might get pregnant. Uh, you have to use protection or you might contract a venereal disease. The whole idea is insane. I need protection from Al-Qaeda. I need protection from ISIS. I need protection from the Taliban. I do not need protection from the woman with whom I share my bed. 
she does not need to be protected from me. I don't need someone. Uh, I don't. I don't. She doesn't need to be protected uh, from me. I don't need to protect from her. There's not competition. There's competition certainly uh, between the forces of evil in this world that desire to destroy the church and to get inside the sheepfold and slaughter the sheep. That, there's certainly competition in this world, but that competition isn't in the marriage bed. At least it shouldn't be. We don't use protection against people that we have pledged our lives to sacramentally before the altar of God in Christ's church. The idea of protection is absurd, and we must never, ever, ever use that language and correct it if we ever hear it. So it is the man's duty, because of this complementarity reality within the spirit of charity, it is the man's duty to lay down his life for his wife, as Jesus did for the church, and the wife to respond in kind. So here's the, here's the meaning of that mutual subjection with which St. Paul begins in this percopy on marriage. And keep in mind, as I'm talking to you about all this, I'm, bar I'm borrowing heavily from the theology of the body of St. John Paul II. Now, if you've never read that uh, gigantic book, it is uh, his lectures that he gave on Wednesday audiences between 1979 and 1984, a little break, obviously, from when uh, the Russians tried to kill him using the Bulgarian uh, KGB. Uh, but the, the, there was a little break, obviously, you couldn't give those Wednesday lectures. But when he gave the Wednesday audiences, he gave them for about five years. And the collection of all of them is the theology of the body. So I'm, I'm borrowing heavily from that. In keeping with the domestic church being grounded in charity, St. Paul rules out absolutely there being any coercion between those who are one flesh. Ephesians 5.29 is perhaps one of the most revolutionary verses in the entire Bible, if we think about the societal context in which it was written, when he says, for no man ever hates his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. How do we then convince our spouses when we are in disagreement? We certainly don't resort to beating our wives. That is to say, men don't do that. And women don't resort to every manner of manipulation in order to somehow coerce him into submission. Instead, the answer is to love harder. In an empire, he's writing within the concept of empire, where wife beating was perfectly legal, something that was legal in Korea in our own lifetimes. So then it's still legal throughout the Muslim world because it's in the Quran. He's writing and saying coercion, absolutely ruled out in all marriages. There is no such thing as coercion when we're talking in terms of charity. So what St. John Paul does uh, is absolute genius, but his he does an inadequate job of explaining in his magnum opus why exactly the man must be the head of the household in the plain meaning of St. Paul's words and how the man being the head of the household actually contributes to order, not disorder. And so to answer this question, we have to look into the origins of hierarchy amongst humans. Now, there's obviously been hierarchy from the beginning between God and the angels, uh, uh, but, but we're going to talk about hierarchy among humans. This is something that didn't come from the beginning. At the creation of the world, there was no hierarchy. How does hierarchy enter into the world? It enters into the world uh, after the fall, 
And if you turn to your Bibles of uh, Genesis chapter 3, we can read uh, the, the verse 16. And this is the Lord uh, speaking to the woman. Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Because sin has entered into the world, and thus death has entered into the world, the possibility of death, hierarchy is introduced by God as the means, ironically, to preserve life. He rules over the woman not to dominate her, but to preserve her life. We must understand these words, remember, are from Christ himself. If they are from Scripture, they come from the Word of God, and they are the words of Jesus, since he is the Word of God. And thus, they can't be interpreted in a way that would be ambivalent or, uh, worse, malicious. They are rooted in charity because God is love. Hierarchy is introduced not to the woman's detriment, but to her advantage. The analogy that I make is being in combat. And when I did that course in, uh, I, I went into this, uh, when, when I did the course about men should be men, that I did for uh, Institute of Catholic Culture uh, in June, five years ago. Men are given the role of the protector precisely because they are more suited to it. Men, as I said earlier today, are, are, are stronger. On average, uh, you take just 100 men off the street, 100 women off the street. Uh, the men will, on average, be 15% larger, stronger, and faster. Besides that, they have uh, more uh, uh, thicker uh, bone density as well as muscle density. They are simply built uh, in a way that enables them to be better protectors. So a man, however, cannot protect your life from the wolf if you do not do what he says when the wolf is at the door. He cannot protect you from the wolf if you do not obey him, it's like in combat, the officer has to be obeyed or all the soldiers are gonna be killed. If they don't obey in the hierarchy, it's gonna be a complete disaster. Now, why did the sheep listen to the shepherd's voice? They do it because they know he loves them. They don't do it out of servile fear. How many soldiers obey orders from their commanding officer because they're afraid he'll shoot them? Not many. You talk to combat veterans who had good officers, they'll tell you that they would have laid down their lives for him because they knew he cared about them and wanted them to live. So in peacetime, the man builds himself up in the way of love. He makes continual sacrifices constantly during the time of order and the time of peace. He's constantly laying himself down making sacrifices on behalf of his wife and his children so that his wife and his children know without a doubt in their heart of hearts that he loves them. And the wife and the children simultaneously build themselves up by grace and the way of obedience so that when the family does come under fire, in unity, the unity of which St. John the 23rd speaks in Ad Petre Cathedrum, when they do come under fire, in unity, they may defeat the threats to order, the threats to life. Last week, I emphasized that the social breakdown that we have witnessed these past 150 years is the result of 
males sort of societal-wide throughout the West abdication of their responsibility. So for the ends of marriage to be realized, the restoration will take place when men have once again assumed the roles that God gave them. So we will have order once again, the order that St. Augustine pointed to, and which, which the church eventually established through the conversions through the conversion of the nations, we will have order reestablished in the West when males once again reassume the responsibility that has been given to them simply by virtue of them being made men. That every man is made to be a father. Whether or not he has biological progeny or not, every man is made to be a father. Every woman is made to be a mother. Whether or not she has biological progeny is irrelevant. We are made male and female. Every man is made to be a father. Every woman is made to be a mother. Fulfillment of a man's role is his salvation. So let's go back to uh, Ephesians uh, chapter 5, verse 25 to 27. We, we sort of blew over it really fast, but now we're going to study it a little bit more in detail. It says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. The end of marriage, which we must honor, is the salvation of souls. It says it in the preamble to marriage. If you go to any wedding, uh, anybody that's ever been to a wedding, hopefully you've been to a Catholic wedding, you've heard that that the purpose that people are ending in is for each other's salvation. And also, obviously, when they work together, they will aid in the salvation of other people. The mutual subjection by which the spouses help each other get to heaven. Obviously, the man fulfills this in truth by service and sacrifice, by the laying down of his very life. And this is why the man... Uh, always makes the vow first, and he gives the ring first. The declaration of consent at the very beginning, he does that first. The woman gives herself to her husband only after he has first pledged his life to her. This is, of course, the reason why premarital sex makes no sense, and we'll and I'll get that to into a second. But when a man must first pledge himself to his bride, and then she pledges herself to him. In the modern context, this means that a man must protect, who are the wolves? The man must protect his bride from the forces that threaten her salvation. And those forces are principally today the satanic forces that tell her to medicate her fertility. If that doesn't work, then to mutilate her body. If that doesn't work, then to kill her very own children. And there are, these messages are ones that are, you so probably saw the case on Texas with this girl, 18 years old, was supposed to give a valedictor, valedictory address. And then she threw out her script, which had been approved. And then she gave a talk on how great is abortion. I don't know if you saw that. Well, clearly the American educational establishment had accomplished its purpose in that girl because she got the message that she was supposed to medicate her fertility if that didn't work, to mutilate her body, and if that didn't work, to kill her own children, to reject what it means to be a woman. Rather than 
use his wife as an object for his gratification, a man must tell the truth with his body and share his own fecundity. He has to pour himself out completely as Jesus did. We look upon the crucifix and we see Jesus pouring himself out completely. He's usually dead, and there's a hole in his side showing where the blood and the water poured out. He gave himself 100%. So a man cannot do the same thing. He can't follow Christ's example if he withholds from his bride, to whom he has pledged his life, his fertility. Contraception is a sin because it is a lie. And he can't hope to get his wife to heaven if he lies to her within the context of conjugal intimacy. Nor can he hope to get her to heaven if he cooperates in her lies to him. So while we recognize that the crisis we find ourselves in is because of males' abdication of their responsibility, we must also acknowledge uh, the, the free will of women and the reality that many women participate in this evil willingly. They, they don't do it from coercion, they do it out of conviction. So if a man finds himself with a wife that is trying to lie to him, he has to say, this is about our salvation. After all, the marital act, insofar it is sacramental, remember that marriage is a sacrament precisely because it's the means of grace by which we are aided in our quest to gain heaven. Insofar as marriage is sacramental, it is supposed to be a prefiguration of heaven. The marital act specifically and especially is supposed to be a prefiguration of the divine intimacy we will know before the throne of grace. What does the Bible say about sex all the time, over and over and over again? He knew her. He knew her. So it's a knowledge that only married couples can have. And it is a prefiguration. It is a prefiguration of the intimacy, the divine intimacy, that we will know when we are standing before the throne of grace. So that is to say, it cannot be attained through lies. So we cannot simultaneously sin and receive grace. So we can't imagine that we could contracept and what should be a sacramental act, we're nevertheless going to get grace. It's, 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 it's uh, self-contradictory again. It makes no sense. We have to throw linear thinking and reason out the window in order to imagine that contraceptive sex can impart grace. It can't. Contraceptive sex is a lie, therefore it cannot impart grace. Nor can a man show his wife that vision, that prefiguration of heaven, if he has no concern for her psychological well-being. To follow all of the rules, that is to say, okay, we're not going to contracept, we're going to give ourselves to each other completely, uh, we're going to honor what the church teaches with regard to natural family planning, etc. That's not enough. To be true is to desire what is best for his spouse, to desire what is best for her, even in bed, in the most private intimacy about which no man or woman ever talks about with anybody except his spouse. We don't talk about these things. We don't, because it's not, it's not private because it's gross. It's private because it's so beautiful. It's private because it's so awesome. But he has to have a concern for her that she receives the same glimpse of heaven that he has. So he must sacrifice so that she also glimpses heaven. 14 years 
in the confessional have taught me, sadly, that there are a lot of men who don't very much care if their wife enjoys marital intimacy. And that is a tragedy, and it's society-wide. When they come together to renew the marriage covenant, the man actually has to have a concern for his wife that she also might attain that glimpse, however faint, of heaven that the marital act is meant to impart. If the man is true to his role, he will so order his household that his wife desires to be true to her role as well. We can see here now how the ends of marriage complement each other. If a man's sacrifice of his life, if the definition of how a man sacrifices his life is to place himself between the wolf and the sheep, a woman's reciprocal sacrifice, remember it's mutual subjection, St. John Paul emphasizes, mutual subjection. A woman's reciprocal sacrifice is likewise at the risk of her own life, which is to say childbirth. We don't think of that very often. Planned Parenthood does. They always say more women die in childbirth every year than die in abortions. That's an absurd statistic, of course, because 1.2 million people die every year and half of them are women. But the Planned Parenthood says more women die in childbirth than in abortuaries. It's true. If all you're talking about is the adults, all kinds of women die every year in childbirth. We have an example in the church, of course, St. John Amola, who was canonized in 2004. Her feast day is 28th of April. She didn't die in childbirth, but died a week later. Uh, she gave birth on April 21st, died on April 28th. She laid down her life in order that her child might live, that she might present to her husband their offspring. And to this day, even in Benin, which is, of course, uh, in, in West Africa, a former French colony, to this day, the number one cause of death in Benin among women is childbirth. Now, does the UN send them any penicillin that might help with sepsis? No, they send them loads of condoms, loads and loads and loads of contraceptives, and women are dying in droves from sepsis from childbirth. A woman lays down her life for her husband by being willing to become pregnant. This is why premarital sex makes no sense. It makes absolutely no logical sense for a woman to consent to have sex with a man who has not pledged to lay down his life for her. Because what she's doing by having sex with him is pledging to lay down her life for him. So premarital sex is nonsensical. So a woman fulfills the one end of marriage Salvation through the sacrifice of the other end of marriage, that is to say, bearing children. So we have the two ends of marriage, salvation and children, and the woman fulfills them, fulfills them both within the same context. A bunch of people just said to themselves, a woman's salvation is advanced by bearing children. Is that what Father just said? And where the heck did that come from? You sound father like a retrograde chocolateite. Well, we will conclude tonight with our Bibles in a different epistle of St. Paul, but it has the same theme. That is to say, we will see in this verse our mutual subjection to one another rooted in charity out of reverence for Christ. So we turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2, 
verse 15. Where does it say in the Bible that a woman's salvation is advanced by bearing children? Well, it says it right here. Yet woman will be saved through bearing children if she continues in faith and love and holiness with modesty. Well, that's all I have for you tonight. We'll talk next week. Uh, again, I said uh, uh, prescriptive. What do we do as individuals? How might we, uh, through pious devotions and uh, public actions, uh, advance the culture of marriage? So, uh, Peter? Wonderful. Thank you so much, Father. You've given us all uh, tons to think about over the next week. Thank you so much for your preparation and your time tonight. Uh, Annie, I think that we have a good amount of questions coming in. I'm going to hand it over to you for the first one. There is a question coming in, Father, if you could address the the issue of infertility in couples, particularly mm. with women's salvation and childbearing. Excellent, excellent. So the one of the things that the church has always done uh, from the beginning has uh, blessed marriages of people, even women, who are beyond childbearing age. This is a, this is a reality. Why does the church do this? Why, uh, when we after everything that we just said, uh, and and how uh, infertility uh, is obvious in those who have gone through menopause? Why does the church bless it? Because of the reality that the complementarity of man and woman, uh, the mutual subjugation about which we spoke today is present even in those couples who can't have children. And therefore, stands as an example, as Father Hezekiah said before uh, the class even began, stands as an example of uh, the divine intimacy that God desires for everybody. That man is meant to live in community, man, God is love, uh, and we, as St. John Paul says in the Theology of the Body, are obviously made, if we stand in a mirror naked, we can see that we're not, uh, that we're, there's, there has to be a compliment to us, that we aren't full by ourselves, uh, that we have to become one flesh uh, uh, in order for life to proceed. And life proceeds, as I said, even without biological progeny. Biological progeny uh, don't mean, uh, if you don't have them, it doesn't mean you're not a father. It doesn't mean you're not a mother. And us together, my wife and I, we were didn't have any children for the first five and a half years of our marriage. It took a long time for my uh, uh, wife and I to conceive. Uh, but that did not mean that we could not be this image that God desires to show to the world. And so uh, even those who are uh, infertile, that is to say, uh, can't, can't uh, receive the gift of God. God has chosen not to give them for one reason or another. Uh, or sin has impeded it. Uh, children, remember, are a gift, not a right. So, so if we are uh, given that cross, or rather if we have to bear that cross of infertility, we nevertheless may be an icon for what it means to pour out ourselves for one another. So that's, this, this is, this is uh, the fact that a woman can't have children. If she desires them, like Hannah, right? Like Elizabeth. Uh, and then, and then and what, can, what, what might happen? A miracle might happen, and and, and sure enough, uh, in, my, in our own case, we prayed and prayed and prayed, uh, saw Our Lady's intercession, and now we have uh, 11 children. Father, this question comes in from Michael. 
He says, we already have four kids and would like more, but we come from non-religious families. How can we explain to them in a charitable way why we keep having kids and how we plan to have more? Well, for secularists, um, I I tell people, I I think I mentioned Elon Musk's name last year, last week. Uh, Elon Musk has said, uh, stop saying that the major problem in the world is overpopulation when I can't get enough people to fill my factories to work to build my Teslas. Now, he's not a Catholic at all, uh, but he recognizes the world. The problem in the world is underpopulation. So what we generally say to secular people is uh, uh, the world is going to need a lot of people in order to take care of you guys when you get old. And what we're trying to do is to ensure that you will not be abandoned uh, to a nursing home. We're going to make sure that one of these children uh, takes care of you and uh, changes your diaper when you are old and unable to any longer go to the bathroom yourself. So, I mean, that, that's, that's the simplest way uh, for secularists who, who have no religious background to understand why everybody in America should be having, uh, at a minimum, at least four children, if they're capable. Obviously, those who are in infertile, nothing you can do, but, uh, but uh, except pray. Uh, those who can have children should be having at least four. Uh, and if, if, if we can raise our, our uh, birth rate, our natural fertility rate uh, among native-born Americans back up to four, we might have a way out of this. We might have a way out of this. Father, you need to have one more to make up for like three couples. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Remember that, when the, remember that when the fertility rate was four, when it was last four back in 1964, uh, there was uh, half a million women in religious life. That meant for every nun. There was a woman with eight children. In, 19, uh, in 1977, 7% of women had five or more children. In 1977. Today, that is 0.7. It's seven in a 1,000 women. In 1977, so just, in just that short time, uh, the number of people who have large families like mine has dropped dramatically. I, when I was a kid, I remember all kinds of families. I was one of five. I can remember all kinds of families with five kids. And I was in a Protestant neighborhood. Today, they're few and far between, unless you go to those sort of Catholic islands throughout the United States I talked about. Well, Father, could you speak to, uh, there's a question here about natural family planning. And, and this attendee is asking how to convince a spouse who may not be interested in, in practicing natural family planning, I guess, would prefer to use contraception in marriage. We, I mean, this is a hard question, but if you're, if you're married... Uh, something you should be able to say to your spouse. I'm tired of being used. I don't be used anymore. I'm not here for mutual masturbation. I'm here to give myself to you completely. And that's why I married you, because I want to give you my whole self. I want to give you my fertility, not just my vagina. I want to give you my fertility, not just my penis. I want to give you everything that I have. And I don't want to be used. Father, this question comes from Lauren. She asks, do you think that there's a connection between the crisis of fatherhood and society's seeming inability to love reverently as opposed to loving out of servile fear? Of course. I mean, the the only thing the government has has to give us is servile fear. What has happened? What has happened in the last, since 1980, how many people were in federal prisons in 1980? Uh, 700,000. How many are in federal prisons now? Over two million. So what is it? What is the state doing? Is it teaching? Reverend? I mean, if we if we see this problem happening, 
We have men advocating their responsibilities. What we should have is a massive program to encourage fatherhood. And what we have instead is a massive program to build prisons. So servile fear is the means by which we are replacing fatherhood. And there's many other ways that it happens. And if you see the, the whole bully culture, right, where the cancer culture is all about bullying, that has nothing to do at all with reverence. You simply convert people by making them afraid to disagree. That, isn't, that is not reverence. That's not healthy. That isn't charity. And the society can't be built on that. What happens is ultimately people rebel. You have a revolution. Uh, you have complete disorder. Uh, so, yes, uh, absolutely, that is correct. We have to have fatherhoods, men in the home, and then people will be reverent, and they, then they won't have to be pounded down. So you only really have to teach your son through coercion uh, pretty young. Uh, by the time he's 17 or 18, he should be, he should have together by then. Uh, uh, coercion isn't really necessary for adult males living in the home still, uh, you know, 16, 17, 18. It really only has to happen until about 15. And and if we have that, then then we set them on the right path. Father, if you have um, written in asking uh, your, your comments, your thoughts on adoption as an option for infertile couples, Hundred percent. That's what my wife and I were doing. That we we uh, went to uh, was uh, St. Joseph's Center in um, uh, Scranton, and then we went to Catholic Social Services uh, when we had been uh, married for four and a half years. And we said, you know, can we adopt? And they said, no, you haven't been married five years. Okay, so we so said we'll come back on our anniversary. Well, we, we're going to come back on our fifth anniversary, which was June thirtieth. Uh, my wife got pregnant in April, so you know, we'd have to go. Uh, but that was what we thought we should do uh, because we thought of our, we thought that we were just not going to be able to have children. We said, but still, uh, we are pouring ourselves out to one another. And this uh, life of sacrifice uh, should include people who, for one reason or another, uh, maybe they've been abandoned, maybe they've been orphaned, uh, they can absolutely become a part of our. Uh, of our family. And, and as it turned out, uh, the way the Lord willed, uh, we didn't end up adopting, uh, but it was something we 100% uh, wanted to do and would have done. Well, Father, we're going to go ahead and close with that one. Uh, thank you again for your time tonight. We're looking so much forward to next week's conclusion of this series. It's been an excellent one so far, so I'm definitely looking forward to it. Father, could you close our session in prayer tonight? Yes. Peace of God was passed with all understanding. Keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge of God and of His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be upon you and remain with you always. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.